when you tear out a man's tongue, you are not proving him a liar. You're only telling the world that you fear what he might say. George R.R. R. Martin Have you ever wondered what is beyond the history books? What secrets lay hidden behind some of history's greatest people? Perhaps you would like to know more about history conveniently shielded from our eyes and learning. A new history podcast that targets history's gritty and dark side. History Uncensored. You can follow along as your host Seth Michaels drags you through the slavery, war, women, and idiots of history. Anywhere you can find podcasts. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 101, Disaster in Sicily. For 415 to 413 BC, Thucydides' narrative concentrates almost entirely on the Sicilian campaign, and he gives us only fragments of information on other matters back in Greece and in the Northeast. So our understanding of these events are incomplete. But he does mention that in central Greece in the summer of 414 BC, the democratic faction at Thespia staged a coup against their oligarchic government. It was not successful though, as help quickly arrived from Thebes. Some of the democrats were captured, while others managed to escape and flee to Athens for safety. Further north that summer in Thrace, the Athenians attempted to recover Amphipolis and the Pangaeus mines near the Strymon River. As we discussed in episode 99, the previous attempt by Athens to recover Amphipolis had been organized two and a half years earlier by Nicias, in coordination with the Macedonian king Perdiccas, but was aborted when Perdiccas jolted the Athenians, joined the Spartan Argive alliance, and then refused to give assistance to the Athenians. But by late summer 414 BC, the wishy-washy Macedonian king finally gave in to Athenian pressure, broke with the Peloponnesians, and allied with Athens once again. A fragmentary inscription has been found, recording evidence of an alliance between Perdiccas and Athens that perhaps can be attributed to this last change of alignment. In any case, Perdiccas finally gave his promised aid to Athens, and together they launched an attack on Amphipolis, led by the Athenian general Eution and a large body of Thracian mercenaries. But they failed to take the city by assault so they brought some triremes into the Strymon River and set up a blockade, using Himerium as their base. However, this also was unsuccessful, 
and it's unclear how long the siege lasted, but presumably, if it was carried over into the following year, it would be called off by the end of 413 BC. Due to the events that transpired in Sicily, and the fact that Perdiccas died that year. Perdiccas first got together with a woman named Simache, who was either a slave or someone with non-Macedonian lineage. By her, he had two sons, Archelaus and Aeropus II. He later married a woman from the Macedonian elite, named Cleopatra, with which he had another son, making him the legitimate heir to the throne. But according to Plato, upon the death of Perdiccas, this unnamed son was just seven years old, and so the elder Archelaus was able to obtain the throne by drowning his younger half-brother in a well. Perdiccas had guided Macedon for 35 years and played a major role both aiding and thwarting Athenian interests in the northeast during that time. But under Archelaus, who ruled from 413 to 399 BC, Macedon would become a greater power than ever before, and he would be consistently pro-Athenian. He will be on the Macedonian throne for the rest of the Peloponnesian War, and so we will return to him in the future. Moving into the Peloponnese, during this entire period, the Peace of Nicias was still formally in effect, though low-level hostilities continued. As we have discussed, Sparta and Argos continued to raid and invade each other's territory. But although the Athenians made frequent raids of their own from Pylos into Messenia and elsewhere in the Peloponnese, they refused the Argives' requests to make a direct attack on Laconia. Apparently, by their odd interpretation, this was the perceived red line that violated the peace. But in the summer of 414 BC, the Athenians could no longer deny their allies' pleas for more vigorous action, as Argive soldiers now were fighting side by side with the Athenians in Sicily. So the Athenians, likely because they now felt emboldened due to their initial successes at Syracuse, finally took actions that removed any lingering doubts among the Spartans that the peace was no longer valid. The campaigning that season began with the Spartans and their allies marching against Argos once again. They went as far as Cleone in the northeastern Argolid, but then an earthquake occurred which caused them to return to Laconia. Afterwards, the Argives responded by invading the disputed border territory of Thyrea, where they captured much booty and then sold it for 25 talents of silver. Later that same summer, Sparta and its allies made a second invasion of the Argolid. They laid waste to most of Argive territory before returning home. In response, the Argives raided Phileas again, killing some of its inhabitants. During this raid, the Athenians had sent 30 ships to aid the Argives, under the command of Pythodorus, Laspodius, and Demartus. But in a striking departure from their other Peloponnesian expeditions after the peace was signed, the Athenian fleet also attacked Epidaurus Lamera, Prassii, and other cities on the coast of Laconia. The Spartans were understandably furious, but instead of immediately mustering an army to invade Attica, they strategically offered to submit this dispute to arbitration, an offer which the Athenians refused. Thucydides says that both the attack on Laconia and the refusal of arbitration was seen by the Spartans as a clear Athenian violation of the peace treaty. And so, if the Spartans wished to resume hostilities, the Athenians' foolish and provocative actions had now given them a plausible reason of self-defense and alleviated any guilt they might have had from starting the war and refusing arbitration to the Athenians in the first place. 
Despite the fact that the Athenians had technically broken the treaty with their recent raids on the Laconian coastline, the Spartans were still somewhat hesitant to initiate war with Athens once again. However, they started getting more enthusiastic when news arrived that Gallippus had reversed the situation in Sicily, as we discussed last episode. Ultimately, the Athenians' recent decision to send a second expedition to Sicily would be a galvanizing moment for Spartan inaction. In particular, the Syracusans and Corinthians now urged the Spartans to invade Attica in the hopes that it would prevent the Athenians from sending out their intended reinforcements, and the Spartans voted in favor of this proposal. They likely now were willing to prosecute the war more forcefully, not because they knew that they would be able to stop these reinforcements from making their way to Sicily, but because with so much of Athens' manpower now being committed to ensure success against the Syracusans, it would be safer for them to invade Attica now than at any other point before. And so the Spartans spent the winter of 414-413 BC prepping their allies and gathering iron and other materials for the building of a fort at Decalia which was in the hills some 14 miles to the northeast of Athens and about the same south of the Boeotian border. This was the location that had previously been suggested to them by Alcibiades. They also prepared reinforcements of their own and of their allies to be sent to Gallipus in Sicily. At the beginning of spring 413 BC, they sent out three contingents at various times and from various locations in order to better avoid the Athenian navy. The first was made up of 600 hoplites and the Neodomides, or freed helots, under the command of a Spartiate named Ecritus, and the second consisted of 300 Thebans, under two of their own generals, named Xenon and Nikon, and a Thespian named Hegesander. These would leave from Cape Tenarum in southern Laconia and sail together across the open sea straight to Syracuse. They would make it to Syracuse at about the same time that Gallippus arrived back with his new recruits that he spent the winter gathering in Sicily and southern Italy, as we mentioned last episode. A third force of 25 Corinthian triremes and 700 hoplites from Corinth, Sicyon, and Arcadia, under the command of a Corinthian named Alexarchus and a Sicyonian named Sargius, would sail west through the Gulf of Corinth, providing escort to their merchant vessels loaded with supplies. Due to its location and cargo, of the three contingents, this third one was most likely to receive Athenian attention. But thanks to how things were shaping up in Sicily, and Sparta's willingness to resume hostilities, the Corinthians at this point were filled with confidence too. And so they actually hoped that the Athenian squadron that had just arrived at Naupactus would try to prevent their passage and engage them. At the same time, Aegis led a Peloponnesian army into Attica the first such occurrence in 12 years. After devastating the land on the Attic Plain, they seized Decalia and began to build a stronghold to host a permanent garrison. It would remain there until the end of the war, and its existence denied the Athenians the use of their immediate countryside as well as their silver mines at Larium. This would do more economic damage than the short annual invasions of the early years of the war. It also had an enormous physiological effect on the Athenians. Thucydides says that instead of a city, Athens now became a garrisoned fortress. Because for the rest of the war, soldiers of all ages took turns standing watch day and night on their walls against a potential Spartan attack. In addition, each day the cavalry was sent out to keep the Spartans at bay. 
All of this tired their men and their horses, and since they were needed to defend their city, they were not available for the war effort in Sicily, where they were sorely missed. Meanwhile, Demosthenes had spent the winter requesting troops from their allies and getting together the necessary money, ships, and hoplites at Athens. Preparations were ready by the spring, and it's a measure of Athenian courage, or perhaps foolhardiness, that at the same time as the Spartans were building a garrison fort at Decalia, they still chose to send a large relief force to Sicily. When Demosthenes finally set sail, he did so with 65 triremes, 60 Athenian and 5 Chian, 1,200 Athenian hoplites, and a large number of allied forces. At the same time, another fleet of 30 triremes left the Piraeus under Charicles. Together, these two Athenian generals did not sail directly to Sicily. Instead, they first launched an attack on the Laconian coastline. Along the way, Charicles stopped at Argos and added a force of hoplites to his fleet, in agreement with their alliance, and Demosthenes stopped at Agina and awaited there for his Aegean reinforcements, who hadn't arrived at Piraeus, to join him now. Then the two forces jointly plundered part of Epidaurus Lamera before moving on to their ultimate target, a cape across from the island of Kythera. After they landed there, they laid waste to part of the countryside and fortified its isthmus, intending for it to be another base for helots to escape to, and from which they could raid Laconia. However, it was too far from Messenia for the helots to get to, as it would require traversing through the heart of Laconia and the Athenians ultimately never launched any attacks from it, and they would abandon it the following year. Therefore, it's likely that this was not the true objective of the mission, but more so that they hoped by attacking the Laconian coastline and setting up another fortification, they could draw the Spartans at Decalia back to their homes. Whatever the case, after Charicles left a garrison there, with his fleet, he returned to Argos and then to Athens, while Demosthenes continued on with his fleet and reinforcements to Sicily. They sailed along the Peloponnese to Corsaira, causing trouble and recruiting allies along the way. In one instance, they found a merchant ship lying anchor at Phaia in Elis. Some Corinthian hoplites were preparing to use it in order to cross over to Sicily, so the Athenians destroyed the ship. But the men escaped and subsequently got on another vessel and continued with their voyage. Afterwards, Demosthenes sailed his fleet to Xanthos and Cephalonia, where he picked up more hoplites, and then to the opposite coast of Acarnania. There, he sent for some of the Messenians from Naupactus. While waiting at Acarnania, he met Eurymedon, who had sailed back from Syracuse to notify him of the terrible situation reversal for Athens and Sicily. More on that shortly, and the need for him to hurry with the reinforcements. But before they could set off, the Athenian admiral now Pactus, a man named Conan, who will become important later, arrived presumably with the requested Messenian hoplites, but also with the news that the aforementioned 25 ships sailing from Corinth were now preparing to attack his fleet. He therefore asked that they aid him by sending some ships, as he only had 18 triremes stationed there, and he did not feel that these, despite only being marginally outnumbered, would be able to defeat the 25 Corinthian ships in a sea battle, and thus prevent them from sailing through the gulf. Conan would later prove himself to be one of Greece's greatest admirals, so his hesitancy here suggests that the ships at Naupactus were manned by inferior crews, probably because the best had been sent to fight in Sicily. 
Whatever the case, Demosthenes and Eurymedon realized the importance of preventing those ships from reaching Syracuse, so they let him have the ten fastest ships in their fleet with their crews. Then, after Conon sailed back to Nalpactus, they began to assemble the rest of their forces. Eurymedon went ahead north to order the Corsairians to man 15 ships and to enlist more hoplites. At the same time, Demosthenes raised slingers and darters from various parts of Arcania, and then he rendezvoused with Eurymedon at Corsaira. Gallippus was well aware of Demosthenes' ability as a commander. But more importantly, despite all that he had accomplished the previous year, the Syracusans were still short on money, as they were paying for the services of around 7,000 foreign soldiers. In addition, the Athenian blockade, no matter that it was unfinished, still succeeded in disrupting the money from trade that typically filled the Syracusan treasury, and unlike the Athenians, the Syracusans didn't have an empire that provided them with funds for the cost of building, fitting out, and manning warships. And so, Gallippus was well aware that the arrival of fresh reinforcements from Athens might have led the Syracusans to once again consider surrendering. Therefore, he knew that it was imperative for him to finish off Nicias' forces before their reinforcements arrived. In doing so, his goal was to attack the Athenians' most vulnerable position, that being the southern side of their harbor fort at Plumerium, which held their naval supplies, and to expel them from this advantageous site. But in order to achieve this, he would need to negate the Athenians' most advantageous asset, that being their navy. Ultimately, he decided on a plan to use an untried Syracusan navy as bait to distract the Athenians while his land forces swung around and assaulted the fort from the rear. The tricky part, though, would be getting the Syracusans to go along with this plan, as he would need to persuade them to fight a sea battle against the superior Athenian navy. Therefore, he enlisted the help of Hermocrates, who despite the fact that he was no longer a general, was still a powerful figure and held considerable influence. After Gallippus convinced Hermocrates of the efficacy of his plan, they called the Syracusans together for a meeting in their assembly. Hermocrates' speech is recorded by Thucydides. He tells the Syracusans that it is in their interest to man as many ships as possible and to try their hand at a sea fight against the Athenians who he argues are not invincible and wouldn't retain their naval prowess forever. He convincingly explains to them that the Athenians only became a maritime power recently and out of necessity when facing the Persians, and so the Syracusans had the same opportunity before them to rise to the challenge against the Athenians, just as the Athenians did almost 70 years earlier when defending their homeland. He concludes by urging them to put aside their fears and fight with audacity as it will unnerve the Athenians and lead to a Syracusan victory. The eloquence and forcefulness of his speech managed to convince the Syracusans that they could win and in their enthusiasm, they prepared their ships for a naval battle. When the Syracusan fleet was ready, that evening under the cover of darkness, Gallippus led out the army. While they secretly made their way to Plumerium, in the early morning, the Syracusan navy with 80 triremes launched their attack. As 35 triremes from inside the Great Harbor rode boldly toward the Athenian fleet, the other 45 began to sail around the island of Ortigia from the Little Harbor, on the seaward side. The Athenians quickly manned 60 ships and divided their fleet into two, so that 25 confronted the Syracusan squadron inside the Great Harbor while 35 blocked the entry of those coming from the Little Harbor. 
a double battle then began, with the outnumbered Athenians fighting on two fronts. As the Syracusans wished to force the passage, and the Athenians desperately tried to prevent them. As the lines clashed, with equal tenacity on both sides, each fought to a standstill. Little by little, though, the outnumbered Athenians were pushed back towards their center. But after this initial success, the Syracusans' lack of naval experience quickly showed, as they struggled to sail forward as a single unit and fill the gaps where the Athenians used to be positioned. Amidst this confusion, the Athenians quickly and in one accord launched a counterattack. This caused the Syracusan line to disintegrate, and in the ensuing rout, the Athenians managed to chase them back below their city's walls. In total, the Athenians sank 11 Syracusan ships, killing all of the men for eight of them, while the other three were captured and made into prisoners. Their own loss was confined to just three ships, but they suffered many casualties, particularly early on. After hauling ashore the Syracusan wreckage and setting up a victory trophy on an islet, the Athenian commanders and crews attempted to return to Plumerium, but they were too late. At the start of the naval battle, many of the men in the Athenian garrisons at the three forts of Plumerium had gone down to the shore to monitor and to lend support in case any ships ran aground. This had been anticipated by Gallippus, and at daybreak, his troops appeared from behind and swiftly captured the largest of their three forts. Many of the unsuspecting Athenians were killed or made prisoners, but those who managed to escape did so with great difficulty, as they were forced to man a single trireme and sail to the Athenian camp on the western shore during the heart of the naval battle. At that point, the Syracusans were still beating the Athenians, so they were able to dispatch a trireme to pursue them all the way to their camp. Afterwards, with the fall of their largest fort, the garrisons in the two smaller ones quickly fled as well, and so the Syracusans captured them without difficulty. But by that point, the Athenian fleet had established control in the sea battle, so the escaping Athenian soldiers were able to sail towards their camp in retreat with relative ease. Now that Gallippus had established control over Plumerium's forts, which the Athenians had used as warehouses, the Syracusans now possessed the money chest that had been kept there, used to pay for supplies, as well as a large stock of goods, grain, and naval equipment, including most of their naval stores, masts and sails for 40 triremes, and three entire triremes that had been sitting unused on the shore. With some of this equipment, the Syracusan army set up three victory trophies for the three forts that they had captured, when the victorious Athenian navy heard what happened at Plumerium, they were disheartened and bewildered at the turn of events. They had no choice but to join the rest of the Athenian army, all of which were now on the western shore. This was a disastrous strategic blow for the Athenians, and Thucydides says, quote, The capture of Plumerium was the greatest and chief reason for the decline of the Athenians, and in other respects, this event caused confusion and despondency in the army. End quote. The negligence and carelessness of the Plumerium garrisons were symptomatic of Nicias's failure as the commander-in-chief to instill a sense of purpose and professionalism in his army. The Syracusans now held both the northern and southern sides of the Great Harbor, while the Athenian navy was hemmed in on the western shore by their army's camp. Even worse, Athenian supplies were no longer secure, as they now found themselves threatened by Syracusan ships blockading the harbor's entrance. Immediately afterwards, Gallippus reported the fall of Plumerium throughout all of Sicily, using envoys from Corinth, Sparta, and Ambracia to lend credibility to this reporting. 
The new strategic positioning succeeded in convincing almost all of the neutral Sicilian Greek cities to join Syracuse's side. They began to collect reinforcements from those in the north and northwest and prepared to march them overland to Syracuse. When Nicias got wind of it, he asked their sickle allies who held control of these passes in the interior to prevent their passing. So they laid a triple ambush for them on their march, attacking them suddenly and killing about 800 of them and all but one of their envoys. Those who managed to escape, including the Corinthian envoy and about 1,500 men, made their way to Syracuse. Arriving also successfully at Syracuse were reinforcements from southeastern Sicily, who presumably didn't have to worry about the sickle threat. In particular, Camarina sent 500 hoplites, 300 darters, and 300 archers, while Gela sent crews for five ships, 400 darters, and 200 cavalry. At the same time, the Syracusans also sent out a squadron of 12 ships under Agatharchus. One of these went to the Peloponnese, also with Corinthian, Spartan, and Ambraciate envoys, to tell of their success at Plumerium and to seek even more support abroad in terms of ships and troops from their allies on the mainland. The other 11 went to southern Italy to intercept and destroy ships filled with provisions that were being prepared by Athenian allies for Demosthenes' fleet to pick up en route to Syracuse. They managed to find and destroy all of these vessels, as well as to burn the stockpiles of timber on the shore that Nicias had requested so they could be used to repair his rotting triremes. Afterwards, the eleven Syracusan ships sailed to Locris, and while at anchor there, one of the merchant ships from the Peloponnese came in, carrying a number of Thespian hoplites. So they took them on board and sailed along the shore back to Syracuse. The Athenians, though, had received intelligence of the squadron's activity in the north. So with their 20 ships stationed at Megara Hablaia, they were on the lookout for the return of the Syracusan ships. But they were only able to capture one vessel with its crew, while the other 10 were able to make it back safely to Syracuse. While all of this was taking place, Demosthenes and Eurymedon had both finally rendezvoused at Corsaira and their reinforcement fleet was now ready to cross the Ionian Sea to the southern tip of the Iapgian promontory, which is directly west of the northern tip of Corsaira. There, they renewed Athens' old friendship with Artis, the chief of the Mesopian tribe, and in return, he provided them with 150 Iapgian darters for their expedition. Then, they sailed south to Metapontum, which provided them with an additional 300 darters and two triremes, and then to Thurii, where they found that the Thurians' oligarchic government had been recently expelled by a revolution, and so the democratic Thurians took advantage of the situation to conclude a defensive and offensive alliance with Athens. As a result, the Thurians also joined in on the expedition by sending 700 hoplites and 300 darters. The two Athenian generals then sailed further southwards along the Italian coast. But once again, the Athenian fleet was denied access to Croton and Locris, and so they continued on their journey to Regium. Meanwhile, back in the Corinthian Gulf, a man named Dephilus was the new Athenian commander at Naupactus, though it's not stated why he had taken over for Conon. In any case, he now had 33 ships in his possession, with which he was planning to attack the 30 of the Peloponnesians who were commanded by a Corinthian named Polyanthes. This Peloponnesian fleet was anchored off Arrhenius in Achaea, which was to the southeast of Naupactus on the opposite shoreline. 
As Dephilus sailed out his ships to meet them, Polyanthus at first did not move his fleet, but when it became clear that battle was imminent, he raised his signal and his ships too sailed towards the incoming Athenians. Prior to the battle, in order to overcome the usual Athenian advantage of having greater experience and training, Polyanthes had made a small but important alteration in the design of his triremes. Typically, at the bow of each trireme, there was an epotis, which in modern naval terms is called an outrigger, and this is a plank where the topmost oarsmen were seated, projected out from the sides of the ships, which made them very vulnerable to an attack. During the normal course of a naval battle, triremes would avoid ramming each other head-on, as that would damage the apotioles of both ships in a way that wouldn't bring advantage to either side. But Polyanthes reinforced the front faces of his apotioles with strong bowed timbers called cat heads, so that when the Athenians came forward, his would be able to smash their outriggers and thereby cripple their ships, but without causing much, if any, damage to his own. In the open sea, against an enemy who was prepared for it, these new tactics could be overcome. But they could be successful in restricted waters against an unprepared fleet. And these exactly were the conditions in which this battle was fought. So during an obstinate struggle, the Corinthians, with their reinforced Apoteolus, were able to totally disable seven Athenian vessels, while only losing three of their own in the battle. Still, the results were indecisive, and so both sides set up victory trophies. The Athenians managed to gain possession of the wreckage as the wind drove it to their shoreline, but the strategic victory went to the Corinthians. For the first time, a Peloponnesian fleet had fought a numerically superior Athenian fleet to a standstill. But more importantly, they were able to force their way through the Gulf and thus provide protection to their merchant ships traveling west to Syracuse. The Athenians no longer had the overwhelming naval superiority which they had enjoyed thus far for the length of the war, and the repercussions of this cannot be overstated. Back in Sicily, there were many minor, though almost daily, skirmishes in the Great Harbor. Spurred towards new strategies from two years of constant warfare, both sides now applied all their ingenuity and engineering skills to the naval effort. At Nicias's orders, Athenian engineers transformed the exposed shoreline of their main camp into a palisade by driving long wooden stakes into the sand beneath the water some distance offshore, acting as an artificial harbor that protected their ships when drawn onto the beach. In addition, the entrances of this palisade were widely spaced at about 200 feet apart, and empty merchant freighters were anchored in front of them. Each was equipped with iron or lead weights, in the shape of dolphins, that were suspended above the gaps. If a Syracusan trireme tried to attack the palisade, these heavy metal dolphins, as they were called, would plummet downwards, punch holes through their hulls, and either disable or sink them. At the same time, the Syracusans had placed wooden stakes in the waters in front of their own docks in order to allow their ships also to lie at anchor inside without fear of the Athenians sailing up and destroying them. But the Syracusan engineers made sure that most of the stakes in the stockade did not go above water, making them barely visible and very dangerous for the Athenians to sail up for fear of running into them unknowingly and puncturing their ships. So the Athenians knew that these needed to be destroyed if they had any hopes of launching an assault on the Syracusan harbor. 
In order to do so, they converted one of their largest merchant freighters into a kind of floating fortress, with its very own wooden towers and screens, and loaded up with archers and dart throwers. During one dangerous operation to remove the wooden stakes that protected the Syracuse Naval Station, this floating fortress was towed across by Athenian triremes. During one dangerous operation to remove these wooden stakes, this floating fortress was towed across by Athenian triremes to the Syracuse Naval Station, while hired divers plunged into the water from small boats. As the Syracusans tried to shoot them with missiles from their docks, the Athenian archers and dart throwers on the floating fortress kept up a running fire of missiles of their own in order to provide their divers cover. Once under the surface, these divers then pulled up or sawed through the wooden stakes. The operation ultimately was successful, and most of the stakes were removed. While all of this was taking place, Gallippus began to make plans to dislodge the Athenian camp before their reinforcements could arrive, but it quickly became clear to him that in order to do so, the Syracusan fleet would have to beat the Athenians at sea before his army could achieve anything significant on land. But after their first defeat, the Syracusans weren't quite up for the challenge of round two. However, when news arrived of the Peloponnesian triumph in the Corinthian Gulf, the Syracusans began to grow more confident, until finally they were eager to challenge the Athenian fleet once more. Their ships, though, were still inferior to that of the Athenians, and so to counter Athens' greatest naval asset, their maneuverability, Syracusan ships were redesigned for sea fighting in the narrow waters of the Great Harbor. Their bows were shortened, and the forward sections of their rowing frames were strengthened by adding longer wooden beams. Similar to the earlier Corinthian innovation, Syracusan shipwrights also cut off the beaks of their rams, which left them with blunt, snub noses made of solid timber. These then could be used to ram head-on the lighter, hollower prowls of the Athenian ships, which would smash their vulnerable rowing frames and put the upper ranks of oarsmen out of commission. And because they were hemmed in on the western shore of the Great Harbor, the Athenians would have very little room to evade them. Although the Athenians by now had learned reports of the efficacy of head-on attacks made by the Peloponnesians in the Corinthian Gulf, their overconfidence in their own superiority and their belief in Peloponnesian naval incompetency led them to believe that these were not carefully planned tactics, but moves made inadvertently by inferior crews. In fact, this was the standard stereotype held for those who engaged in this type of naval warfare, and the Athenians thought it was superior both in skill and tactics, to sail around and ram ships from the side, a maneuver called the paraplus, rather than head-on. And so they didn't expect what they erroneously believed to be accidental, unskillful tactics to be transferred over to the Syracusans here. Once again, in this second stage of his attack on Nicias' forces, Gallippus planned a joint operation by land and by sea. His battle strategy involved his land forces threatening the Athenian fortifications from multiple directions, while his navy sailed against the Athenian fleet. So on one morning, Gallippus marched his army out of Syracuse to the portion of the Athenian wall facing the city, while Syracusan forces from the garrison at Olympium approached it on the opposite side. And so, some Athenians ran to one wall, and some to the other, and since they now had to defend their walls on two sides, this left them woefully unprepared to face the approaching Syracusan fleet of 80 triremes, 
commanded by a Corinthian named Ariston. Because of this, Plutarch relays an anecdote here that Nicias did not wish to engage in another sea fight until after Demosthenes and the reinforcements had arrived. He was confident that his stockade and so-called dolphins would protect the fleet and that all attention should be focused on defending the walls. But Menander and Euthydemus, who had only just recently been appointed to the rank of strategos for the first time, were eager to achieve a success of their own before the other two generals arrived and overshadowed them. And so while Nicias manned the army on the wall, they managed to scrap together enough men to fill 75 triremes and put them out to sea to fight the Syracusans. The first day's fighting proved inconclusive though, as the two armies and navies were involved only in minor skirmishes and maneuverings with instances of advancing, but not before they retreated back to their normal position. Ultimately, by the end of the day, the Syracusan land forces and navy fell back to their original positions. By the end of the day, the Syracusan forces fell back to their original positions, although their navy did manage to sink two Athenian triremes before returning to their docks. The second day saw no fighting though, either on land or at sea. Since the Syracusans gave no signs of what they intended to do next, Nicias used the lull to prepare his harbor's defenses for another attack. He had his captains refit any of the ships that had been damaged, and he moored even more merchant vessels in front of the stockade to serve as a sort of enclosed harbor, so that any ship could retreat and sail out again in safety. These preparations occupied the Athenians all day until nightfall. On the third day in the early morning, the Syracusans resumed operations with the same plan of attack by land and by sea, and again the battle on both fronts became a long skirmish. Finally, a Corinthian named Ariston devised a plan and persuaded his fellow naval commanders to go along with it. They sent a messenger to the Syracusan officials back in the city, telling them to move their market as quickly as they could down to the sea, and after it was set up, the Syracusan ships backwatered and withdrew for some rest and to take their dinners on the beach near their docks, where merchants were selling food to the hungry men so that they could eat quickly. As we have mentioned before, Greek soldiers and sailors at this time had to purchase their food from local markets, so the speed with which a trireme cruise meal could be prepared and eaten would be significantly affected by the proximity of the market to the boat. When the Athenians saw this taking place, they likewise headed for their own shore, believing that the Syracusans had withdrawn from the naval battle, either because they felt that they had been defeated or because they no longer desired to continue the fighting. Either way, the Athenians suspected that the naval battle was over, so they disembarked and went about getting their dinners without a sense of urgency. This would come back to cost them, because while only some of the men were able to start eating, and most were still preparing their food, the no longer hungry Syracusans quickly manned their ships for a second time that day, and sailed out against them. Amidst great confusion, the tired, still hungry, and now stunned Athenians barely succeeded in boarding their ships for a second time and putting them back out to sea. For some time, both parties remained on the defensive without engaging. But finally, the Athenian generals, not wanting their very hungry and tired men to be worn out by waiting, ordered their fleet to charge out towards the Syracusans. Seeing this, the Syracusans sailed out to meet them with a head-on charge of their own. In this second battle, they not only attacked them head-on, but in even narrower waters and with a few new tricks than before. 
They had loaded their decks with javelin throwers so that once an enemy trireme was immobilized by being rammed head-on with their modified prowls, they could hurl their javelins at Athenian rowers. In addition, daring Syracusans in small boats dashed in under Athenian ore banks and threw javelins to wound or kill even more defenseless rowers. These unorthodox tactics, combined with the weariness and hunger of the Athenians, proved to be decisive, and the Athenians were only able to escape disaster by fleeing to safety behind their palisade and their rigged merchant ships. The Syracusans pursued after them, but two of their ships were too reckless and too aggressive in their excitement, and so they were destroyed by the dolphins. One of the two ships had its crew taken as prisoners. In total, the Syracusans managed to sink seven Athenian ships, and an even larger number were disabled, as many Athenian sailors were killed or taken prisoner. The Syracusans then set up victory trophies for both engagements. This was their first naval victory ever, and it was a convincing one against the mighty Athenians. They were now confident in their own naval superiority, and together with their land army, they believed that they could defeat Nicias' forces once and for all. However, although the Syracusans now dominated the Great Harbor, that wouldn't last for long. It was now July, and just as the Syracusans were making preparations to deliver the final blow to Nicias' forces, on land and at sea, Demosthenes and Eurymedon finally sailed into the Great Harbor with their long-awaited reinforcements. This new fleet consisted of 82 ships, including 73 triremes, and carried a total force of around 20,000 including 5,000 hoplites and 3,000 javelin throwers, slingers, and archers, as well as supplies for all aboard and those at Nikias' camp, in the form of weapons, money, siege machines, and every kind of equipment necessary. In addition, Plutarch says that the triremes were decked out so theatrically in order to terrify the enemy. The size and appearance of the fleet amazed and intimidated the Syracusans, and their arrival had a tremendous psychological effect. Despite foreign occupation, the Athenians had sent an expedition almost the same size as the first, and because of this, Thucydides says that some in Syracuse started to wonder if there would ever be an end to their city's peril if the Athenians could just reload like this whenever they suffered a defeat. In terms of military advantage, these massive reinforcements briefly gave the Athenians the initiative once more, and as they sailed into the Great Harbor, the Syracusans fell back to their docks and the Athenians were able to re-establish control at sea. Once Demosthenes landed his troops, he immediately began to assess the situation. Being a brilliant tactician himself, he thought along the lines of Lamachus's original strategy, for an instant attack, while the enemy was in a state of shock and awe about the size of the new force. So with his characteristic clarity and boldness, he planned to remedy Nicias' previous mistakes at once. He was confident that his fleet could blockade the city by sea, and he quickly realized that the key to success had to be the capture of the Syracusan third counterwall, which would allow the Athenians to complete the circumvallation of Syracuse by land. Therefore, he first led the Athenian army out to lay waste to the lands around the Annapolis River, and the Syracusans were so taken aback by his arrival that they did not even send their cavalry and light infantry from Olympium out to oppose him this time. Next, he made his first direct attack on the heavily guarded Syracuse and Third Counterwall on Epipoli. However, the siege engines that he brought up were set on fire by those Syracusans defending the wall, while the rest of his forces were repulsed at all the different points that they tried to attack. This demonstrated to him that any assault by daylight would ultimately be in vain. 
So undaunted, in early August, he, along with Yuri Midon and Menander, led a second attack on Epipoli. This one was boldly at night, on the western pass of Euryalus, with about 10,000 hoplites and 10,000 lightly armed troops, while Nicias was left behind with the rest of the forces at their camp. In total darkness, with only the moon above them, they surprised the Syracusan garrison and took the fort. They slew some of them in the process, though most managed to escape at once and raised the alarm to the other two camps defending the counterwall, which alerted them that the Athenians were on the heights in full force. Those camps were manned by their allies, and together with the Syracusans who escaped, they advanced against the Athenians' position. But they too were quickly routed, and the Athenians then raced forward to exploit their success by sending a first force ahead to clear the way while a second force followed behind swiftly to the counterwall. The Syracusans who stayed behind to guard it were easily dispersed, which allowed the Athenians to capture and tear down parts of it. By this point, Gallippus had received word of the situation, and he managed to gather his forces and advance to the counterwall, but they too were dispersed and forced to retreat. All of this was achieved with daring and unexpected tactics led by Demosthenes. But the situation would quickly change for the Athenians. After their initial victory, the first Athenian force pressed on further, but they did so with less order this time, as they wished to make their way as quickly as possible through the whole force of the enemy before they had time to rally. But in the process, the Athenians came across a regiment of Boeotian hoplites, led by the Syracusan general Hermocrates. They made a determined stand in the dark by falling upon the Athenians from every which way with their spears. Those who weren't killed turned and ran in confusion. This defeat proved to be the turning point of the battle, as the Athenians quickly became disorganized in what devolved into a chaotic nighttime operation. Adding to the confusion was the fact that both sides had a great number of hoplites moving about in such a small space. And so, in the dim light of the moon, the main body of Athenians could not tell whether the men running towards them were friend or foe, a problem that was compounded by the fact that their generals failed to place anyone at the Euralis Pass to direct traffic. So some Athenian forces advanced eastwards unchecked, Others ran back towards Euryalus in retreat, and still others had just come up through the pass and were unsure where to go, as no one was there to instruct them which group they should join. As a result, the Athenian forces became discombobulated and confused. When they realized this, the Syracusans added to the chaos by shouting and cheering, which by night was the only possible means of communication, and as they began to sense their victory, they reverted to the Dorian custom of singing a paean. These were war chants sung by troops going into battle, and apparently there was a distinctive one sung only by the Dorians. Their war cry in the darkness terrified the Athenians even further. In addition, there were Dorian peoples in the Athenian forces, such as the Argives and Corsairians, and they got confused, so they began to sing out their own paeons, which were indistinguishable from the enemy, and this only added to the terror and disorganization. At the same time, neither Demosthenes nor Eurymedon had any familiarity with the plateau, and this ignorance would be disastrous. Their disorder not only caused the Athenians to collide into each other, but some even fought amongst themselves as they didn't know who the other person was. As their retreat quickly turned into a rout, some died by the hands of their pursuers, others by friendly fire, and many Athenians in the dark accidentally jumped off the cliffs to their own deaths. 
Many of the experienced men from Nicias's army, who had familiarity with the plateau, were able to find their way back to camp, but the new men that had just arrived wandered about aimlessly until daybreak, at which point the Syracusan cavalry hunted them down and killed them. This was the greatest disaster so far suffered in the war for the Athenians. On the next day, the Syracusans set up two victory trophies, one where Hermocrates and the Thebans won their first victory, and another near the Euryalus Pass. Then, the Athenians under truce collected their dead, and the magnitude of the disaster became evident. Around 2,500 were killed, and many more were wounded or had lost their armor in the retreat. This defeat brought an end to the Athenians' hope of conquering Syracuse and Sicily. It was now replaced by the goal of simple survival. After this unexpected stroke of good fortune, Syracuse dispatched their general, Sicanus, with 15 triremes to Acragus, where a revolution had just kicked off, in the hopes that they could induce the neutral Acragans finally to join their cause against the Athenians. At the same time, Gallippus again went by land to the other Greek Sicilian cities to announce their victory and to ask for aid. As the triumphant Syracusans set out to recruit additional allies for an assault on the Athenians' walls that they hoped would bring about a final victory, the Athenian morale sunk even lower. Their military defeats were bad enough, but now fever likely from malaria or dysentery, were spreading from the nearby marshes through the hot and crowded Athenian camp. Thucydides writes, quote, The situation appeared to them to be as hopeless as it could be. End quote. Then, there was a debate among the five generals as to their next course of action. The overly cautious Nicias, who stayed behind during the operation, accused Demosthenes of acting too rashly which of course is an easier stance to take after the fact, and the sources don't record whether he held the same objection prior to the attack on Epipoli. Whatever the case, after the defeat, and upon seeing the diseased-ridden Athenian camp, Demosthenes had a change of heart and now advocated for an immediate withdrawal back to Greece. He argued that their financial resources and manpower would be better used in defense of their city against a potential Spartan invasion coming down from Decalia and so he would rather risk his life against the Spartans in defense of their homeland than settling down in Sicily and accomplishing nothing, and despite their most recent loss on land, he felt that their fleet was still sufficiently strong enough that if need be, they could still fight their way out of the Great Harbor. This was wise counsel, as he no doubt had come to the realization that there was now no way for them to take the Syracusan counterwall in Epipoli and so there was no chance to successfully besiege Syracuse. Therefore, it was time for them to cut their losses before one disappointing failure turned into an unmitigated disaster. Eurymedon agreed with Demosthenes, but Nicias, despite the current state of affairs, insisted on staying in Sicily because he did not want to abandon the siege in such a disgraceful fashion. His main argument was aimed at countering the financial considerations raised by Demosthenes. His informants in Syracuse had led him to believe that despite their victories, the Syracusans still were in a worse financial situation than the Athenians, as they would soon run out of money to pay their mercenary force, which had already cost them around 2,000 talents. In addition, the Athenian fleet, which now controlled the Great Harbor once again, could make matters worse for them by preventing supplies from reaching Syracuse by sea. 
But this is a sketchy argument, because even if the sea lanes were cut off to Syracuse, they controlled the heights and could get supplies over land. Sure, the Syracusans were short on money, but their victories would have improved their credit and encouraged their allies to lend them what they needed to achieve complete success. And they could always temporarily tax their own citizens in times of crisis. Furthermore, Nicias' greatest hope rested on intelligence reports that a party inside Syracuse was still willing to open the gates and turn the city over to him. And so this had encouraged him to hold his ground and wait the Syracusans out. Again, this isn't a compelling reason, as the hopes of treason could likely have been a ruse by the Syracusans. Sure, there may have been a pro-Athenian faction still willing to help Nicias, but they likely wouldn't have gained enough support for their cause following Syracuse's recent victories. As the strategic situation was nowhere near the same as it had been before Gallippus' arrival, Nicias then went on to explain that he preferred to be killed by the enemy rather than being killed by the Athenians, who would condemn him if he returned having not met any of their three objectives. Therefore, it seems that this final given reason by him for wanting to stay was his real motive, not because he actually thought that the Syracusan treasury would run out or that they would turn the city over to the Athenians, but because he feared the consequences most that would befall him for his failures from the Ecclesia back in Athens if he accepted peace and returned empty-handed, like they had done to the generals a decade before in the first Sicilian expedition. Although Demosthenes and Eurymedon opposed him here, they were outvoted when Menander and Euthydemus, the two junior men elected to assist the ailing Nicias, lent their support to their senior commander. These three men also rejected Demosthenes' proposal of compromise, which urged them at least to withdraw from the marsh outside Syracuse to a healthier and safer position at either Thapsus or Catania. From there, they could raid the Sicilian countryside and live off the land, and once away from the Great Harbor, they could fight in the open sea, where the new Syracusan tactics would be ineffective and where their own skill and experience would give them an advantage. It's likely that Nicias felt that once the Athenians boarded their ships and sailed out of the harbor, it would have been impossible to keep them in Sicily for long, and they would be forced to return to Athens, because there is no good reason to explain why he opposed this proposal too. Shortly thereafter, while the Athenians lingered on in this way without moving from where they were, Gallippus and Sicanus arrived back at Syracuse. Sicanus had failed to win over Acragus, because before he had even passed Gela, the party friendly to the Syracusans had been driven out of power once again, and so he turned back. Clippus, though, had more success as he came back with a large number of troops from his Greek Sicilian allies. In addition, he arrived to find that additional forces in the form of 600 hoplites, helots, and neodomides had arrived from the Peloponnese. It's possible that these were the ones that Demosthenes had previously attacked in Elis. Regardless, they had originally sailed in merchant vessels across the open Ionian Sea, but were delayed by storms as the winds carried them southwestwards to Libya. From there, they were able to obtain two triremes from the Cyrenians and then cruised along the North African coastline to Neapolis, a Carthaginian trading post and the nearest approach to Sicily. There, they crossed over to Selenus and sailed along the southern Sicilian coastline until they arrived at Syracuse. And so, immediately upon the arrival of Sicanus, Gallippus, and their reinforcements, the Syracusans began to make preparations for another attack on the Athenians, again by land and by sea. 
After seeing a fresh army arrive at Syracuse, and as disease continued to diminish his forces in numbers and morale, Nicias finally gave in to Demosthenes and Eurymedon and agreed to withdraw back to Greece, but on the stipulation that they would hold no open vote which might forewarn the enemy about their impending retreat. So as inconspicuous as possible, the crews prepared the ships while the troops loaded their gear and supplies on board. They were to do this for the next three days, until the night of the 27th of August, and orders were given that not a man in the camp should be late, and whoever lagged behind would be left in Sicily. This night was chosen for the retreat, because there was to be a full moon, which would provide just enough light to allow the Athenian steersmen to make their way out of the great harbor safely. However, on the night of their planned retreat, Plutarch relays an unfortunate anecdote, originally given by a 3rd century BC historian and seer named Philochorus. He says that right when the fleet was about to evacuate, a total eclipse of the moon occurred. As darkness covered the sky, the superstitious Athenians were terrified, saw it as a bad omen, and refused to embark. Furthermore, the particularly pious Nicias consulted his soothsayers, who recommended that no action should be taken until the next full moon the following month. A commander who really wished to escape, or continue with the journey, could have conceived an interpretation, like Pericles had done previously, to the effect that the gods are favoring this journey or something along those lines. Regardless, Nicias unquestionably accepted the omen as unfavorable, and the plan for Athenian evacuation was to be postponed for 27 days until late September. Their delay was costly, though, because word inevitably leaked to the Syracusans by deserters that the Athenians had planned to leave and then remained. And so now they had a whole month to concoct a plan to prevent their escape and attack them in a vulnerable position. Ultimately, the Syracusans decided to force another sea battle in the Great Harbor, so they spent the next few days making preparations, fitting out their ships, and practicing their crews and naval techniques. When the day for battle finally arrived, the Syracusan army made a sortie out through the gate against a small company of Athenian hoplites and cavalry. They crushed them, killed 70 horsemen and a few hoplites, and forced them to retreat back to their camp. The Athenians then realized that they wouldn't be able to escape without another fight, so they began to prep their army and navy for another joint battle. On the following day, the Syracusan army advanced out through their gate once again, while at the same time they sent all of their available triremes, 76 in total, to attack the Athenian base from the sea. The Athenians responded by manning their walls and by sending all of their available 86 triremes out into the Great Harbor. Eurymedon, Menander, and Euthydemus commanded the Athenian right, center, and left respectively, while opposite of them on the Syracusan left, center, and right were Agarthicus, Pythes, and Sicanus. Because of their larger number of triremes, the Athenian line was longer, extending on their right wing ten triremes beyond the Syracusan left. So Eurymedon ordered these ships to perform the Athenians' favorite circling maneuver, the Periplus. But he was too close to the shallow part of the harbor, known as the recess, and so they couldn't attain full speed. Therefore, before his ships could make their way around the southern part of the Great Harbor and use this maneuver, the Syracuse and Center, using their modified rams, were able to smash through Menander's ships in the Athenian Center and caused them to retreat. 
Instead of pursuing after the fleeing Athenians, Pythus and the Syracusan center, using their modified rams, were able to smash through Menander ships in the Athenian center and cause them to retreat. But instead of pursuing after the fleeing Athenians, Pythus ordered his ships to, to turn and join the Syracusan left in attacking Eurymedon's squadron. And so this combined Syracusan force managed to rout the Athenian right and push them up against the shore, destroying seven ships and killing Eurymedon in the process. That was the turning point in the battle, as Euthydemus and the Athenian left found themselves overpowered by the remainder of the Syracusan ships. And so they were compelled to turn and retreat as well. But in the shallow part of the harbor, they essentially became very slow-moving targets. Realizing this, the Syracusan general Sicanus attempted to destroy the entire Athenian fleet at once by bringing up an old freighter, packing it with dry brush and resinous pine wood, and setting it on fire. Breezes then wafted the flames from the ship towards the Athenian triremes. Somehow, though, the Athenians managed to fend it off, but they lost many ships in the process and were pushed ashore near the breakwater a narrow strip of land in the northwest of the Great Harbor, lying between the marsh of Lysimela and just north of the Athenian camp. As a result, they had to disembark from their ships and attempt an overland route back to their camp. But Gallippus and his forces had seen what was transpiring, so he had led them down to the breakwater, and they were waiting there when the Athenians came ashore. As a result, they were able to kill many of the fleeing crews. But as they pursued after them and attempted to overrun them, they found that a force of Etruscans had just arrived. And together, they and the Athenians were able to hold Gallippus' forces back. Afterwards, when the rest of the Syracusan army arrived in even greater numbers, the rest of the Athenians, fearing for their ships, also came up from behind their walls at their camp to engage them. Ultimately, the Syracusan forces here were defeated, and the Athenians pursued them for some distance killing some of their hoplites in the retreat. The Athenians succeeded in rescuing most of their abandoned ships and bringing them back down to their camp, but not before the Syracusans had captured and hauled away 18 of them. As a result, because of their losses and captured ships, the Syracusan navy now held the numerical advantage. The Syracusans then set up two trophies to commemorate their dual victories on land and sea. The Athenians also set up a victory trophy of their own for their repellence of Gallippus' forces, but this was a hollow gesture. For all intents and purposes, this was a decisive Syracusan victory, and the Athenians had suffered another major defeat. The Syracusan fleet now could cruise freely around the Great Harbor for the first time since the war began, and their amazing naval victory reinvigorated the Syracusan people, who now were determined more than ever to get rid of the Athenian menace once and for all. But they didn't just think of only saving themselves, but also how to hinder the escape of the Athenians, since they rightfully realized they were now in the stronger position and could achieve great glory and admirations throughout the Greek world by totally destroying the Athenian fleet and thus its empire. As a result, the Syracusans would be seen as the liberators of those that the Athenians had oppressed. At this point, Thucydides goes on a bit of a digression as he lists all the participants in the Athenian forces who would be freed with a Syracusan victory, recounting their ethnicity, their status, and the circumstances that led to their inclusion in the expedition. And then, for completeness, he does the same for all participants in the forces defending Syracuse against the Athenians. 
In particular, he makes note that never before had so many different peoples assembled for a military expedition in the vicinity of a single city. The Athenians were now in a desperate situation, and a few days later, on the 3rd of September, they observed something unusual. A mass of older triremes, merchant vessels, and small boats were being assembled at the mouth of the Great Harbor, which was nearly a mile wide. The Syracusans anchored these ships broadside and then began to form a barrier with them by latching them together with iron chains. This was soon completed and the Athenian fleet was now trapped. The only way out was a small opening that the Syracusans had left to allow a few of their own ships to pass through at any given time. According to Plutarch, at the sight of this, many Athenians began to openly despair to their generals and beg them to make an overland withdrawal immediately. But Nicias refused their overtures, arguing that it would be a terrible thing for them to abandon so many transports and triremes. The Athenian generals and other officers then held a council of war to discuss their current situation and their next course of action. Factoring into their discussion was that they now were very short on provisions. And so, with the Great Harbor effectively sealed off, they determined that they needed to force the action very quickly. Ultimately, they decided to abandon their main camp, to reduce their lines to just a harbor fort close to the ships, and to build a smaller walled enclosure around it in order to protect their sick and injured. They would put all healthy bodies on every available ship for a single battle, and there were still enough healthy rowers and fighting men left to fill 110 triremes. If victorious, they would be able to destroy the barrier, collect those left behind at the harbor fort, and make their way to the open sea and onto Catania. If they lost, they would have to burn the boats and make an overland retreat to the nearest friendly territory, whether it was Greek or sickle-controlled. However, the force that now prepared to fight for their very existence was not the same type of fleet that had made Athens a superior naval power. Instead, they were a ragtag group of hoplites, javelin throwers, and archers who would have to stray away from the traditional, sleek ramming techniques for a more antiquated naval fighting style. Learning from their previous defeats, in order to meet the enemy's offense of ramming head-on with thickened catheads, the Athenian ironworkers began to forge claw-like grappling irons that could snag an enemy ship and prevent it from backing away after ramming. And so, after the Syracusan ships would attack them, they would become immobilized, and Athenian archers and javelin throwers would then be able to shoot at them while hoplites leaped across for hand-to-hand combat. This is the type of naval warfare that Thucydides once called the old style of fighting. Essentially, the Athenians prepared to bulldoze their way through the Great Harbor. Six days later, on the 9th of September, all preparations had been made and what historians call the Second Battle of Syracuse took place. With the death of Eurymedon, Demosthenes took over command of the Athenian fleet, alongside Menander and Euthydemus, while Nicias remained on the shore with a small fighting force to defend the Athenian harbor fort and the sick and injured left behind in it. Nicias, though, as the commander-in-chief, still spoke to the entire assembled fighting force on the beach. He saw that they were still disheartened by their unprecedented and decisive defeats at sea, so after prayers and sacrifices were made, he gave an exhortation, hoping to raise their spirits. 
he reminds them that victory would permit them to see their native cities again and calls upon them to draw from their experience as veterans. He begs them not to be daunted by recent reverses and reminded them of the many privileges that they currently enjoy under the empire. In order to fill them with confidence, he then lists out the many preparations and changes that they have undertaken to ensure success in the upcoming naval battle. He concludes with a dire assessment of the strategic situation by warning them that Athens has no military resources in reserve, and that failure here will lead to their quick defeat by Syracuse and then by Sparta. Therefore, he calls upon them to fight with everything that they have left in order to preserve themselves and the Athenian way of life. Afterwards, he gave orders for them to man the ships, and then he took a boat through the Athenian fleet, stopping at each trireme and addressing each captain personally by their name and tribe, so that they remember their ancestors, families, and gods, in the hope of inciting them to even greater efforts. Meanwhile, on account of the preparations being made by the Athenians, Gallipus and the Syracusans could sense that they meant to force a sea battle that very day. So according to Plutarch, the Syracusan priests and generals went up to the temple of Heracles, whose exact location is unknown, but presumably was in the city somewhere, perhaps in the Agora. After they offered sacrifice to the god, diviners announced that there would be a splendid victory for them today, but only if they fought on the defensive and not by initiating the action. Encouraged, they readied their ships and Gallippus also addressed his forces. He begins by recalling the Athenians' plan to subdue Sicily first, and then the Peloponnese, in order to stir up anger among his assembled troops. He then asserts that the recently defeated Athenians are unlikely to recover their spirits, while the Syracusans now have superior morale. But despite the fact that they have superior numbers, the Athenians now are desperate, and will be forced to use unfamiliar tactics. Therefore, the Syracusans should not take their opponent lightly, and definitely should not expect this to be the same kind of fight as before. With those words of caution, he urges them to take revenge, and they must do so by not acting cautiously, but with boldness, because failure would allow the Athenians to escape, while a success will bring nothing less than the total destruction of their evil empire, which has come to subdue them. After his speech was finished, Gallippus perceived that the Athenians were manning their ships, and so he too ordered his sailors to man theirs. After Nicias had finished his previously mentioned speeches to each captain, he withdrew to the shore where he lined up his detachment of Athenian foot soldiers, while Demosthenes, Menander, and Euthydemus launched their hundred triremes and rowed straight for the barrier across the mouth of the Great Harbor to force their way out. The Syracusans, on the other hand, also had about a hundred ships. Their fleet once again was led by Sicanus and Agatharchus of Syracuse on the wings, while Pythis from Corinth commanded the center. They were spread around the harbor, while the Syracusans also placed a small detachment of ships in front of its barrier to guard the exit. In addition, Syracusan foot soldiers lined their shore and the families of the warriors occupied every high place in order to watch the fight, so that the battle quickly became a sort of athletic spectacle for the soldiers and non-combatants watching on the sideline. As the Athenian fleet sailed towards the harbor's mouth, the Syracusan fleet descended upon them from all sides. The leading Athenian triremes, though, were able to power through and reach the barrier, where they desperately tried to hack through the iron cables that secured the moored ships. 
but they could not achieve this fast enough. And just before the Syracusans were about to clash into them on their flanks and in the rear, the Athenians collectively were forced to turn and fight. A fierce battle ensued with some 200 ships packed close together in a tight space, and both sides displaying great zeal. It quickly became clear that spies had carried word to the Syracusan generals of the new Athenian strategies, as animal hides had been stretched over their prowls and the forward part of their decks, which neutralized the iron hands of the grappling hooks. In addition, the Athenian ships were extremely cramped and with no room to maneuver. While the Syracusans could easily ram them head on, the Athenians weren't able to move to ram them from the side, as they preferred. The Athenians weren't able to move to attack the enemy from the side, as they preferred. Furthermore, in a normal battle in open waters, disciplined rowing was a major Athenian advantage. But amidst the chaotic fighting in such a tight space, the shouting of the men was so loud that it was impossible for the rowers to hear the calls of the coxswains keeping their stroke. So the Syracusans here had successfully managed to strip all Athenian advantages in experience, skill, and technological innovation. Diodorus Siculus writes that the entire great harbor was consumed with the loud crash of ships striking ships and the cry of desperately struggling men slain and being slain. Thucydides describes the varied emotions, cries, exaltations, and anguish when things either went well or badly for those watching on the sidelines. For example, whenever they saw their own fighters winning, the spectators would sing songs of victory, but when they saw them being defeated, they would groan and with tears offer prayers to the gods. At one point, some Syracusan triremes were destroyed along the walls, and their crews were slain before the eyes of their kinsmen, so that parents witnessed the death of their children, and sisters and wives saw the pitiable ends of their brothers and husbands. Most of the individual fighting, though, must have been hard to make out in the jumbled mess of ships. Collisions were frequent, and in the narrow battle space, this likely resulted in multiple ships hitting into each other, like a naval version of bumper cars. Javelin throwers and archers launched their projectiles from the decks of both sides, but neither had the experience doing so while being rammed in close quarters and being thrown about vigorously by the waves, so there was very poor accuracy. As a result, the Syracusans resorted to throwing stones, which were easier to control and more effective in these conditions. Much of the combat, though, involved hoplites boarding the other side's ships and fighting in hand-to-hand engagements. The battle raged on like this for a very long time, with no clear victor emerging, as neither side was willing to quit regardless of how many died around them. In some instances, if any ships tried to seek refuge near a beach, the soldiers who lined the shoreline would hurl insults at them so that their pride forced them to turn back and fight once more, even though their ships were shattered and they themselves were weighed down by their wounds. Over time, though, the Syracusans managed to push the Athenian ships little by little towards the western coast. Eventually, the remaining Athenian ships gave way, and then they fled in panic for their camp behind their harbor fort. With much shouting and cheering, the Syracusans chased after them. The Athenian army on the shore ran back to their camp, some to help those disembarking from the ships, and others to guard what was left of their wall. Unfortunately, though, their order and spirit had been broken, and most only thought of how they were going to save themselves.
After the Athenians managed to make it back to the safety of their harbor fort, the Syracusans and their allies stopped pursuing after them, opting instead to regroup themselves. That's because the sea fight was a severe one for both sides, and the great harbor now was filled with arms, dead bodies, and the wreckage of ships. The Syracusans in particular had eight ships completely destroyed, and another 16 badly damaged. After they picked up their dead and wreckage, they sailed off to their city, set up a victory trophy, and honored those who died with a public funeral. On the other hand, the Athenians were overwhelmed by their misfortune, so much so that they did not even send a herald to seek permission to pick up their dead and wreckage, but instead wished to retreat that very night. Demosthenes, though, managed to keep his composure, even during this darkest of times. He knew that the Athenians had been able to break the barrier, and so, even with their losses, they still outnumbered the enemy, as they still had about 60 ships to the 50 of the Syracusans. So he proposed to Nicias that they gather their forces once again and try another breakout from the harbor the following morning. This plan might have worked, as the Syracusans likely would not have expected another attempt so soon, and the reduced number of ships on both sides would have given the Athenians the space necessary to make use of their tactical superiorities. Nicias agreed, and so he ordered his men to prepare the fleet once more. But the exhausted and demoralized men refused his orders and insisted that they preferred instead to escape by land. Apparently, all it took was two naval defeats to the Syracusans for the Athenians to lose faith in themselves and no longer believe in the possibility of them achieving naval success. The generals were powerless to oppose them, and so they yielded to the men's wishes. Since they no longer were planning to make their escape by sea, Nicias ordered that their ship should be burned so that the Syracusans could make use of them. Then the Athenian generals began to make preparations for an overland retreat that evening under darkness. Meanwhile, after the battle, Syracusan discipline had also disintegrated, but for opposite reasons. That evening, wild revelry echoed from the city of Syracuse, as they not only rejoiced in their victory and salvation, but also celebrated a festival of Heracles. With the enemy likely very drunk, the Athenians thought that they could make their escape unopposed and march overland to friendly enemy territory. However, at least one Syracusan kept his wits, as Hermocrates anticipated this and knew that as long as the Athenians stayed in Sicily, they were still dangerous and a threat to renew the war once they regrouped. Since he couldn't convince his troops to stop drinking, he settled on a ruse. He went to Gallipus and revealed his plans. The Spartan agreed with his assessment, but he also knew that the men were in no shape to take up arms and march out at that moment, so the two generals sent a few Syracusan cavalry to the Athenian camp that evening before dusk to deliver a message. But they did so as if they were covert Athenian sympathizers from the city. These supposed pro-Athenian informers stood at a distance, called out the names of select Athenians who they knew were to be in the camp to give credibility to themselves, and urged them to warn Nicias that the victory feast was just a sham, and that in actuality, the whole Syracusan army was out of the city and was waiting to ambush them along the road as the Athenians make their escape. And so, it would be safer for them to make their preparations at their leisure and not to march away immediately tonight. After saying this, they departed back to Syracuse, and Nicias was informed of the message. Probably due to how disastrous their last nighttime operation went in a hostile and unknown territory on the heights of Epipoli, he fell into the trap, 
and made the fatal mistake of postponing a retreat yet again. And so he gave the soldiers one more day to pack up, and Gallipus used this delay to do exactly as the messengers had said that they had already done. That is to occupy strategic points on all possible escape routes, and to build the roadblocks that did not yet exist. While the Syracusan navy towed away the remaining 50 or so ships on the beach that the Athenians had not managed to burn yet, as they had intended. Finally, two days after the battle, about 40,000 men, only about half of which were soldiers, broke camp in a westerly direction. As they marched, Nicias and Demosthenes each commanded a hollow rectangle of hoplites, which surrounded and protected the civilians and lightly armed troops. It was a shameful and sad scene, as the Athenians not only left their dead behind unburied, but they also left behind their sick and wounded, some of whom piteously cried out and crawled after them as far as they could go. This moved some to tears as they departed, and Thucydides remarks, quote, They look like a city, and one of considerable size, sneaking away in flight after being reduced by a siege, end quote. All carried with them anything that they felt might be of use, though this didn't include food, as there had been none left in the camp. Even the soldiers carried their own equipment, which was contrary to the Greek custom while under arms, as they typically had servants. Thucydides says that's because the soldiers didn't trust their servants any longer, as many had been departing in greater numbers in the wake of their defeats. And so, having already absorbed reverses greater than those suffered by any Greek army up to that point, they marched in fear of capture and enslavement. As their initial glory had now turned to humiliation, they were dejected, and so as they marched, Nicias spoke to his men, hoping to raise their spirits and to calm their anxieties. He urges them not to blame themselves for their defeat and misery, but to hold out hope that their fortunes might soon be reversed. He argues that others have survived far worse, and that the gods might now find pity on them and stop tormenting them. He points out that despite their losses, they are still a mighty army, they may still find friends among the sickles, and they still could raise Athenian power once again. And so there was the possibility of salvation if they could keep their discipline and move swiftly in good order. As he made this address, he went along the ranks and brought back into place any troops that he saw straggling out of line. Demosthenes did the same for his part of the army, and Thucydides says that he addressed his troops with similar words. As the Athenians marched away from their camp, their first destination was Catania, a city loyal to Athens that could serve as their base while they were grouped. But Catania sat to the north of Syracuse, and the most direct and usual route, which went to the west of Epipoli, would expose them to being attacked from behind by Syracusan cavalry. So the Athenian generals planned to march westward along the Annapolis River into the Sicilian highlands, where they would meet up with friendly sickles who could guide them through a more far-off northerly route to Catania that was safer and away from Syracusan forces. But they made slow progress on the first day. When they came to a point on the Annapolis, at the head of a valley almost four miles to the west of Syracuse, they found that the Syracusans had blocked their advance. Although they were able to defeat this small detachment and force their way through, a contingent of Syracusan cavalry and lightly armed troops stayed hot on their heels and continually harassed them during their march the rest of the day. Eventually, they relented, and the Athenians later halted that evening on a certain hill. But since they had little food or water with them, on the morning of the second day, they marched about two miles to the northwest to seek these necessary supplies. 
they eventually reached a large plateau called the Acraean Cliff, about eight miles northwest of Syracuse. The Athenians hoped to make their way over it through a narrow pass in a large rocky ravine, but the Syracusans had predicted this, as they knew their land very well. They stationed a small detachment of hoplites and lightly armed troops there and had them build a wall across the narrow pass. So upon seeing this, the Athenians retreated back to their camp, where they no longer had any provisions, and it was impossible for them to find any thanks to the impending threat of the Syracusan cavalry and lightly armed troops. On the third day, the Athenians tried to bulldoze their way through the fortified position in the narrow pass at the Acrean Cliff. But as they assaulted the Syracusans, a storm of arrows and missiles rained down on them from high above. This forced the Athenians to retreat and to retire to their same camp once again. That evening, a sudden torrential rainstorm fell upon the mountain pass, as so often happens towards autumn in Sicily. And many soaking wet, fearful, and exhausted Athenians took this as a divine sign that they should not press this location any longer. In addition, they had received word that Gallippus' troops now were behind them and were trying to build a barrier to pin them in from both sides. So they quickly sent a force to prevent its completion, and after this success, they decided to move the entire army back off of the plateau and away from the Syracusan forces. Their new plan was to march an even longer route that was further northwest to bypass the Acraean Cliff, and then from there to head east for Catania. So on the fourth day, they pressed forward with this plan. As they marched, the Syracusan cavalry and javelin throwers continued to harass them from a distance, concentrating their attack on Demosthenes' troops in the rear, in the hope that as all of their stragglers were being mowed down, it would cause panic in the rest of the army. But despite suffering heavy losses in their rear guard, the Athenians kept their composure persevered, and continued on for about two miles. When they reached the plains, they halted to rest, and the Syracusans withdrew to their own camp. That evening, seeing the wretched condition of their hungry and demoralized troops, the Athenian generals made the decision to try and sneak away in the darkness, and to no longer press forward to Catania, but to go southeastwards towards the sea. This route would lead them to the other side of Sicily, towards Camarina, Gela, and other Greek and Sickle cities. More importantly, it was in the opposite direction of the Syracusans. So in order to deceive them and achieve a head start, the Athenians lit as many campfires as possible to act as decoys, and then marched out under the cover of darkness. Nicias led the way with an advance group about six miles ahead, while Demosthenes followed in the rearguard with the rest of the army. But once again, marching in the darkness and unfamiliar territory caused disorder in the ranks, which then caused some separation in the two generals' forces. Still, by dawn on the sixth day, the Athenians had managed to make their way to the sea, and by taking the road to Haloris, they were able to reach the Cacyparis River, which they then could follow into the interior and into Sickle territory. But again, when they reached the river, they found a small Syracusan guard that Gallippus had posted there already to prevent their crossing. Still, the much larger Athenian force was able to push their way through and proceed south. Meanwhile, when daybreak came and the Syracusans at the Acrian Cliff found that the Athenians were now gone, they grew angry and many accused Gallippus of letting them escape on purpose, though it's hard to imagine for what purpose he would do that. Whatever the case, their cavalry hastily pursued after them, 
by noon because they were on horseback, they managed to catch up to the rear guard of the Athenian army. By this point, the two generals had about a five or six miles distance between each other. Since they had been separated, it was easier for the Syracusan cavalry to encircle and harass Demosthenes' forces from multiple sides. As Nicias pushed forward, unaware of what was transpiring in his rear, Demosthenes' forces were harassed so incessantly that he made the decision for them to no longer push on, and then formed his men up for battle order in a defensive position. However, not knowing the terrain as well, they ultimately stumbled into and trapped themselves in an olive grove that was surrounded by a wall. The Syracusans climbed atop the wall, and from there they began to shoot missiles down on the Athenians from every direction. This lasted for some time, and the Athenians suffered great losses. Finally, Demosthenes agreed to lay down his arms and surrender on the condition that none of his men would be killed either by violence, by imprisonment, or by being deprived of the necessities of life. The Syracusans agreed, and so the 6,000 surviving Athenian troops from Demosthenes' division were taken as prisoners. Demosthenes, though, tried to kill himself with his own sword, but his captors prevented him from doing so. Afterwards, the rest of the Syracusans followed after Nicias, who had arrived later that day at the Arianus River, crossed over it, and posted his army upon some high ground. On the seventh day, the Syracusans finally caught up to Nicias, reported the capture of Demosthenes, and ordered him to surrender as well. Nicias was so incredulous at this news that he asked for a truce to send a cavalryman to verify its veracity. This was granted, and when the messenger returned, confirming the reports, he immediately sent an envoy to Gallipus, stating that he was ready to negotiate, and offered to have Athens pay for the full cost of the war, in exchange for letting his men all go free, plus one talent as ransom for each Athenian soldier that they already have as a hostage. The Syracusans and Gallipus refused this proposition, though, because no amount of money was worth removing the chance that they now had to wipe out the Athenians. Instead, they trapped Nicias' army and devastated them also with missiles, just as they had done with Demosthenes' forces. The Athenians held out until evening, when they tried to escape in the dark, but in this attempt, only 300 men were successful in busting through the Syracusan guard. On the eighth day, Nicias once again tried to force his way through the enemy, and through the onslaught of missiles, cavalry attacks, and hoplite assaults, they pressed southwards. They managed to make it the three miles to the Asinaris River. There, his parched troops became disorganized in the rush to find drinking water and to cross the river. So as the Athenians disorderly crossed the river, many were trampled to death and others became entangled, fell into the river, and drowned due to their heavy equipment. At the same time, on the other side of the river, a Syracusan force was waiting, and they stood high above and threw missiles down on them. And so the rest were completely massacred by the Syracusan force. Thucydides writes that the river became spoiled as it was full of blood, because bodies began to pile upon one another in the riverbed. Most of the few who escaped and made their way down the river were ultimately killed by Syracusan cavalry. Nicias personally surrendered to Gallipus, not the Syracusans, hoping that the Spartan would remember his role in the peace treaty. He told Gallipus to do whatever he liked with him, but to stop the slaughter of his men. And so Gallippus gave the orders to end the killing and to take the rest of the surviving, a thousand Athenians at this point, as prisoners, which together with Demosthenes' 6,000 troops that had surrendered, made a total of 7,000. 
This was by far the worst defeat of the entire expedition for the Athenians in terms of total lives lost, as around 13,000 of the original 20,000 who set out on this march had been killed, and only a handful managed to escape and make their way to Catania. The triumphant Syracusans stripped the armor from the Athenian dead and hung it from the tallest trees along the river. They crowned themselves with wreaths of victory and decorated their horses. Then, the captured survivors were marched back to Syracuse as prisoners. On the next day, they convened an assembly to decide their fate. A demagogue named Eurycles first stepped forward to speak, at least according to Plutarch, though Diodorus says his name was Diocles. Whatever the case, he put forward two motions. The first, that the day on which they had captured Nicias be made a holy day with sacrifices and abstention from labor, and that the festival be called a scenaria after the river Asinaris, where he was defeated, and the second, that the Athenian prisoners be cast into the stone quarries, all except the generals, who should be put to death under torture. The first motion passed easily, but there was some debate regarding the second one. From the start, the vast majority of the Syracusans were in favor of executing both Demosthenes and Nicias. Demosthenes, after all, was one of the Peloponnesians' greatest enemies due to his earlier role in the war at Pylos, Factaria, and the capture of the Spartans. On the other hand, Thucydides says that many of the Syracusans were in favor of Nicias being put to death because they feared that he would reveal their treasonous correspondence with him, and the Corinthians were also in favor because they feared that his immense wealth would allow him to bribe his way to freedom and come back to cause later harm to them. However, according to Thucydides and Plutarch, their execution was objected to by two key people, the former Syracusan general Hermocrates and the Spartan Gallippus, who wished for them to be brought back to Sparta as high-valued prisoners. In fact, Plutarch says that despite his ability as a general and his role in defeating the Athenians, the Syracusans by this point had grown fed up with Gallippus because they found it hard to put up with his harshness and the typical Laconian arrogance in which he exercised authority. And so they ignored his advice. The motion was carried, the two generals were put to death, and their bodies were dumped outside the city gates. However, Diodorus provides an entirely different account. He says that an elderly man named Nicolaus gave a very long-winded speech. He had lost his two sons during the war, so many expected him to be in favor of punishment. But instead, he sought pity for the two Athenian generals and had won over the people until Gallippus stood up to speak and induced the Syracusans to pass a sentence of death on the two generals. And even more different yet, Timaeus denies that Demosthenes and Nicias were even put to death by the Syracusans. Instead, he records that Hermocrates sent word to them of the decision of the assembly while it was yet in session, and in conjunction with their guards, they took their own lives. Regardless of who ordered it, who supported and opposed it, and how it was done, the result was still the same. The two most experienced Athenian generals were now dead. Thucydides perplexingly makes no evaluation on Demosthenes. On the other hand, he was especially critical of Nicias' leadership, but he does write in an extraordinary eulogy of him, saying that Nicias was particularly undeserving of his fate because of his devotion to virtue. Although Thucydides did not seem to be much for religious piety, he did believe in strict moral standards, and by the conventional moral standards of his day, Nicias was an exceptional man. Unfortunately though, he made foolish military decisions which resulted in the suffering and death of many more Athenians than was necessary, and for this he has drawn criticism from not only his contemporaries, but most ancient and modern historians.
In fact, Pausanias said that he came across a stella in the public cemetery of Athens, and on it were engraved the names of all of the Athenian generals who died while fighting in Sicily, all except that of Nicias. He recorded that he learned the reason for the omission from the Sicilian historian Philistus. Quote, Demosthenes made a truce for the rest of his men, excluding himself, and was captured while trying to commit suicide. But Nicias surrendered himself voluntarily. For this reason, Nicias's name was not written on the stella. He was condemned as a voluntary prisoner and as an unworthy soldier. End quote. It's likely that his voluntary surrender and unworthiness as a soldier was not the real reason, but that the Athenians would come to blame him, and somewhat rightfully so, for the disaster that befell them in Sicily. The 7,000 Athenian prisoners were confined to work in the famous limestone quarries at Syracuse. These vast pits had been excavated in a hillside next to the theater, and both the quarries and the theater are still visible to visitors to Syracuse even today. The theater had been inaugurated some 50 years earlier by Aeschylus himself with the performance of his Persians, which spoke about the Athenian victory for their freedom at Salamis, as we discussed in episode 50. It's a bitter irony, then, that the place which once celebrated Athenian liberty and their momentous naval victory over the Persians now became a prisoner for the defeated remnants of Athens's imperial navy. Crowded together in inhumane conditions, in a narrow hole without any roof to cover them, the prisoners burned by the sun during summer days and were chilled by the cold autumn nights. Their daily rations were a pint of grain meal and a half a pint of water, which was much less than what the Spartans at Sphacteria were given each day, and so they also suffered terribly from hunger and thirst. As the months passed by, many began to die from their wounds, but also from exposure, hunger, and sickness. Dead bodies began to collect, and they were thrown onto piles. An intolerable stench began to arise as disease quickly spread from the rotting corpses. And so, by winter of 413-412 BC, after 70 days, the Syracusans were forced to remove some of the prisoners from the quarry in fear that they would all soon die. All of those who weren't an Athenian or a Sicilian or Italian Greek were branded on the forehead with the mark of a horse and sold into slavery. This basically included all of the surviving Athenian allies from their Aegean Empire or the mainland. Plutarch in his Life of Nicias records the anecdote that because the Syracusans were so fond of the poetry of the playwright Euripides, any Athenian who knew the lyrics by heart to any of his plays and could recite them were also given over to young Syracusan boys to sing at symposia in return for food and drink. Eventually, some of them were even set free. Most, though, were kept in the quarries for a total of eight months, presumably because no one survived any longer than that. After some Athenian prisoners later reached home safely and told Euripides of the role that he had in their freedom, he chose to compose an epitaph for all those who died in Sicily, in which he wrote, quote, These men at Syracuse eight times were triumphant as victors. Heroes they were, while the gods favored both causes alike. End quote. The implication is that the Syracusans were beaten by them until the gods, or fortune, became hostile to the Athenians, at the very pinnacle of their power. Some might call this hubris, which is a major theme that we see in all of Greek tragedy, not just Euripides. According to Pausanias, the triumphant Syracusans celebrated their victory by presenting Apollo with lavish offerings at Delphi, and by building a massive treasury there to house all of their dedications, perhaps just below the Athenian treasury. 
They also instituted the Asinarian Games, as we mentioned, which was celebrated every year on the anniversary of their victory, and named after the river which had witnessed the last scene of the battle. In connection with these games, some of the finest examples of ancient Greek coins were struck, which when circulated abroad showed off Syracuse's new sense of glory to the Greek world at large. These coins included elaborate images with the head of Persephone and of the water nymph Arethusa, encircled by dolphins, and their wonderful four-horse chariots. In particular, there were several issues of large ten drachmae medallions, with an exquisite Persephone crowned with barley on one side. One was found by archaeologists on the slope of Mount Etna. Thucydides summarized the Sicilian expedition as follows, quote, This was the greatest event to have happened in the war, and as it seems to me, the greatest that we know about in Greek history. To the winners, the most splendid of victories. To the losers, the most disastrous of defeats. For they were totally defeated in every respect, and endured the greatest sufferings. They experienced utter ruin. As the saying goes, all was lost. Ships, men, everything. Only a few from the many returned home. End quote. Thucydides calls this the greatest success for the victors and the greatest disaster for the defeated in Greek history up to that point, and the superlative is justified. The Athenians had started with great ambitions, had spent large sums of money, and had sent large numbers of ships and men, but few of the men and none of the ships returned home. The money was spent in vain, and the psychological effect on them and on the whole Greek world was enormous. Essentially, the Athenians had lost tens of thousands of men and two fleets, spent an insane amount of money, and accomplished nothing. Strategically, Thucydides believes that the Athenians had miscalculated in two major respects. First, they underestimated the strength of the Syracusan cavalry and navy. And second, they believed that the Sicilians were disunited and would flock to their banner upon their arrival. His long and detailed account of the Sicilian expedition in books 6 and 7 reveals his own thinking that the expedition was a mistake, likely because it was such a big departure from Pericles' defensive strategy. Pericles had advised the Athenians not to extend the empire while at war, and Thucydides himself, who was a great admirer of Pericles, recognized that the peace of Nicias was a hollow peace, as he put it, and that a state of war existed in actuality. Still, despite the fact that he thought it was a mistake, and Alcibiades was the author of the Sicilian expedition, Thucydides' narrative gives the impression that the attack on Syracuse could have succeeded, and indeed very nearly did succeed, but serious blunders by Nicias were the chief reason for the ultimate defeat of the Athenian forces. And his harsh judgment of Nicias' poor leadership is further reinforced by Thucydides' strongly implied support for Lamachus' plan of action, and his reporting of Demosthenes' damning critique of Nicias' conduct of the campaign. However, the analysis of Thucydides' interpretation of events does not match the narrative that he laid out. In his review of the Athenians' achievements under Pericles, and their failure under his successors, he writes, quote, Many mistakes were made as you would expect in a great city with an empire to govern, including the Sicilian expedition, which was not so much an error of judgment about the enemy, but the failure of those at home to take the right decisions for the forces overseas. Through their private intrigues for the leadership of the people, they weakened the army in the field and brought confusion to Athens' policy by their disputes. End quote. It seems certain that Thucydides wrote these words after the end of the Peloponnesian War and some time after the composition of Books 6 and 7. 
Thucydides here accepts that the expedition could have been victorious, but assigns the responsibility for its failure, not to Nicias and his military blunders. In fact, he actually praises him in the highest terms, as we mentioned, but to those at home in what he felt was a misguided Athenian democracy. It would seem that Thucydides, writing after the war, had changed his mind about Alcibiades' military ability, which he displayed so successfully later in the war on behalf of the Athenians, and had decided that Alcibiades' recall and condemnation was the most critical factor in the failure of the Sicilian expedition, with the removal of Athens' most talented general. Therefore, it was his political enemies at home who should bear the brunt of the blame for making the wrong decision to recall him, because they had put their own personal ambitions of leading the demos before the needs and the good of the state. Historians since Thucydides have continuously tried to argue one way or another for why the Sicilian expedition ultimately failed. Some believe that it was fatally flawed from the outset, and that the Athenians' attempt to conquer Sicily was an example of mad arrogance by their imperial democracy. They argue that controlling a large and populous island like Sicily, at such a great distance as it is from Athens, would be much harder than controlling the islands and coastal cities of the Aegean. And although in the short term, Athens might have been able to conquer Sicily, it is hard to believe that they could have retained control of the island for long. Others, though, argue that the war party at Athens had not been crazy to believe that the Athenians could have brought Sicily under their control, and that there was nothing inherently wrong with the plan strategically, but that a series of bad tactical decisions ensured its failure. They argue that with better leadership, the campaign might have succeeded. In particular, some have judged that by far the biggest single reason for the expedition's catastrophic failure was the incompetence of Nicias which was only aggravated by the recall of Alcibiades and the death of Lamachus. Though the mutilation of the Herms could not have been predicted, the mistrust inspired by Alcibiades' well-known irreverence and recklessness was a terrible and foreseeable liability to the war faction. Although there is a case that those at home should be blamed for the quarrels over the mutilation of the Herms and the lack of wisdom in sending out Alcibiades with a charge over his head, their poor decision-making ultimately was not the decisive factor either. In fact, those at home are hardly mentioned after Alcibiades' condemnation. Perhaps blame should be given to the Athenian people, who voted to grant full powers to their generals to conduct the campaign as they saw fit, and they also voted to send out two massive fleets, both without complaint or criticism. Sure, Nicias's timidity was in large part a feature of his personality, and he bears a great deal of responsibility for the expedition's miserable end, but his fear of acting without authorization for the ecclesia was exacerbated by the impeachment of several unsuccessful generals the previous decade, including the three generals who failed in the first expedition to Sicily, and the historian Thucydides himself. Therefore, perhaps in our final analysis of events, poor generalship and military blunders by Nicias should be accepted as the main cause of the expedition's failure, but the blame for this ill-conceived expedition should also be directed to Alcibiades, as his arguments in the Athenian Ecclesia were so utterly persuasive in convincing the people that there would be little risk involved, at the Athenian demos themselves, because they were willing to believe anything and everything that their young general told them, and finally, at the people at home, for letting their personal ambitions and quarrels with Alcibiades take precedence over the good of the state. Basically, multiple people had a role in bringing about such a catastrophic disaster in Sicily. According to Plutarch in his Life of Nicias, those back at Athens knew nothing of the disaster until a stranger from overseas had reported it to a barber in Piraeus, 
very matter-of-factly, as if it were common knowledge. The horrified barber promptly stopped cutting the stranger's hair and ran the five miles up to Athens, where he found the Archon sitting in the Agora and repeated the tale to them. The Archons immediately summoned the meeting of the Ecclesia and had the barber tell everything that he knew. His description of the outcome of the Sicilian campaign was so horrific that the people at first refused to believe the appalling news. They violently denied the possibility that such a disaster could ever occur, and the barber was in the very process of being tortured as a troublemaker for spreading false intelligence and disturbing the city, when other messengers finally arrived to confirm the astonishing story. When the magnitude of the disaster became evident, and they finally accepted the truth, the angered and frightened Athenian people vented their fury on their politicians who had promoted the expedition, despite the fact that they themselves had voted for it, and on the seers who had predicted its success. In a larger sense, the total and utter destruction of the Athenian forces in Sicily in the late summer of 413 BC sent shockwaves around the whole Greek world. Nobody, and I mean nobody, had anticipated that the Athenians would even lose a naval battle against a foe who had never won one of their own, let alone have their entire fleet destroyed. There was now a general panic at Athens, and with the loss of their navy, and with the Peloponnesian army now being so close at their garrison fort in Decalia, Attica and perhaps the city itself now seemed free for the taking. The Athenian defeat in Sicily also caused a great shift in foreign policy for many other city-states in the following years. Those which had until now been neutral would opt to join with Sparta, likely assuming that Athens' eventual defeat was imminent, and many of Athens' allies in the Delian League would also rise up in revolt. Although the Athenians immediately began to rebuild their fleet, there was very little that they could do about the revolts for the time being. The expedition and consequent disaster left the Athenian treasury reeling financially. The loss of two huge fleets was bad enough, but they also were desperately short of fighting men. Some 10,000 hoplites had perished in Sicily, but more importantly, so did 30,000 experienced oarsmen. Ultimately, Athens would have to rely on a much smaller fleet that was manned by ill-trained, inexperienced rowers. The aristocrats who had never liked democracy would find in the failure of the Sicilian invasion an opening for their oligarchic programs, and there quickly would be a wave of anti-democratic agitation. In the background, the exiled Alcibiades, with a bounty on his head, would continue to prove to the Athenians that he was still alive and could do them both harm and good, both as an advisor to the Spartans and then to the Persians, who would step forward and officially enter the war. Their financial and military backing would have major implications, but for whom? Find out next time on The History of Ancient Greece, Episode 102, Living on a Persian Prayer. (music) 